Hi, welcome to Miss Vision. I'm Jackie. And I'm Joya, coming to you from Florida this week. This week, we are talking to the awesome mastermind behind Lady Brain, Casey Gates, and all things in her world, including her newest project, Girl Code, which has a screening party next month. I got my tickets weeks ago. Do you have yours? Yep, I got mine last week. We are going to see Girl Code on April 13th, which is also would have been my grandfather's birthday. Awesome. So before we get to all that, we've got our current events, and this week's topic of the week is gender equality and white male privilege, as inspired by Aaron Sorkin this week. Let's dive into it. What's up this week? An article in the Washington Examiner this week discusses how women have lost ground in film and television news has dropped to 1998 levels. 98% of behind-the-scenes Oscar nominations go to men, and the article goes to cite things like men outnumbered women two to one as film leads in 2014 to 2015. Hollywood's top-paid union executive, a man, earned 60% more than the highest-paid female union executive. On the 250 top-grossing domestic films of 2015 to 2016, the tally of female directors, writers, producers, executive producers, editors, and cinematographers combined fell to 17%, the same rate as in 1998. 92% of those films had no women directors, and 58% had no women executives. In the broadcast news sector alone, work by women anchors, Field reporters and correspondents actually declined, falling to 25.2% of reports in 2016 from 32%. Of the top 100 radio talk shows, 87 were hosted by men and only 13 by women. And more. You can find the whole article on our blog. Aaron Sorkin is one of the biggest writers in Hollywood. This guy actually inspired our topic of the week coming up next. But did you hear what happened? He was speaking at the Writers Guild Festival. And when people in the audience brought up gender and minority issues in Hollywood, he responded with shock and interest in how he could help. He seemed to be genuinely interested and genuinely unaware, which has a lot of people asking the questions as he live under a lock. Read the full article at our blog. Speaking of women and minorities, the movie Hidden Figures about three black female mathematicians spent the early part of this year beating big names like Affleck and Scorsese at the box office. Which shouldn't be a surprise, as women make up just over half the population. And according to MPAA's recent findings of a 2016 report, made up 52% of moviegoers last year. Movies with the highest percentage of women audiences included Finding Dory, The Secret Life of Pets, and The Jungle Book. And writers, don't forget your spec scripts and fellowship contests that are now open. The Nichols next deadline is April 10th. Topic of the week. All right. We're women. We're artists. We have stories to tell and strong visions. We're trying to build successful careers in entertainment. Let's talk about it and the problems that we face because maybe there are some men listening who genuinely aren't aware and want to know and want to help change it, maybe for their daughters, sisters, wives, or even mothers who might want to work in the industry, or just friends that happen to be women. Well, I can tell you that after uh, last week, or two weeks ago, because we took a week off, um, when I discussed the Gina Davis Institute, I had never really put very much thought into the fact that there really aren't 
that many awesome roles for women out there. And I really, I never took note of the fact that men do think that they're more special than us because they see themselves on the screen. And when we see ourselves, we're the girlfriend, the uh, assistant, the wife. We are not, women are not cast as like the lead, as the Wonder Woman, or as like, um, you know, on Star Wars, the the hero with the female in this last movie. But, I mean, those roles are, like, few and far between, like, hidden figures. That's not the norm of what's out there in Hollywood. And I had just watched, like, a movie. I, I, it was Armageddon. And there's literally one female role in it. I mean, there's, like, some nurses that might be female, but Liv Tyler is, like, the only female lead. And her role was just pitiful. She was Ben Affleck's fiance or girlfriend. Like that was her entire existence. And and also um Bruce Willis's daughter. Like she wasn't her own entity and it was like kind of weird especially after discussing the Gina Davis Institute and like, you know, bringing gender equality into film to see if it was like almost uncomfortable to watch. There were no women in it. There was no women that worked on the oil rig. Like I just saw that movie with um with uh, Mark Wahlberg on the oil rig that blew up or something. And there were women on that oil rig. So obviously females work on the oil rig, but on Armageddon there was only one female and it was someone's daughter and someone else's girlfriend. Like she didn't work on the oil rig. She just happened to be there. And it's like now looking back, especially in movies from the 90s, it's like kind of painful that there are no – incredible roles no i can't say no because i'm sure that there were well no i mean there was look at look at tank girl look at look at tank girl which was directed by a woman and look at the league of their own which was directed by a woman and stars gina davis speaking of speaking of gina davis i think it's an incredible time right now to tell the stories of women That's part of what really draws me to this one story that has a strong single mom as the main character. This is based on a true life story of a woman who was thriving and surviving in the entertainment industry in the 70s. And, you know, I look at this woman sometimes as as a pillar of inspiration, very much so. And I ask myself sometimes, what am I bitching about today when, you know, she was doing this in the 70s? But the fact is, we have not come as far as we should have come since then. We can even bring up recent experience with a big Hollywood production company I was recently doing an internship with. And there was definitely gender discrimination going on because what's funny is I was doing an internship and so is a male friend of mine. We started doing the internship at the same time. And we also happened to talk every day that we happened to be at the internship comparing notes. And one of the things that he said to me was, it must really suck for you being in there. It's such a frat house. And I noticed how when I'm there, it's very quiet, very stiff. Uh, they act very awkward, very uncomfortable. I was reprimanded about um, smelling like flowers, but I smelled too much like flowers. And to please not, it was creating a problem. I never in my life thought that smelling good was a bad thing um, until working in an office with all men where apparently my 
smell and I know you of flowers was offensive. So I know that you don't. I know that I I know you personally, so I know that you don't like bathe in perfume, like because no. I myself I don't overdo it because I hate when people overdo it. Right, absolutely. So I can understand if you were someone that like showered in perfume before you walked into the office, but that's not the kind of person that you are. You like use essential and my oils scents and, are like, very yeah oils. exactly. I was gonna say my yeah. my scents are very subtle. It's flowers or citrus or coconut it's very subtle so um because i'm very sensitive to smell so i don't want to you know i don't want to smell bad but as a woman i like to try to smell pretty yeah you know um i was made to feel so weird in the workplace because of my gender like that that particular experience had never happened before and and then compare like i said comparing notes with a friend of mine not only that something else that bothered me a lot was and i mean i knew this to be true anyway being a woman and dealing with what i face in this industry but when the producer and i were having our weekly intern meeting and he looked at me and said well you're gonna have a really hard time with anyone taking you seriously in this industry because a you're a woman and then paused and looked at me like, you know, I was an alien. And then B, you're not in your 20s. And then and then the other thing he said was, and you're not established. He said, the only women that have a hope of ever making it in this industry are the women who have already been scratching and clawing and trying to make their way for the last 20 years. And I felt like... How can you like, be in your 20s and scratching and clawing for 20 years? He's referring to the fact that women like Jennifer Aniston, Courtney Cox, Reese Witherspoon, those are the women who are going to make it. He made a point and even mentioning Ava DuVernay and how she worked as a publicist for 20 years before anybody allowed her to make a movie. And then use the word allowed. Allowed. Like, that's like when you listen to the terminology that they use with women versus men, it's very interesting just to hear the terminology and the difference in the way that they will speak to you. When her, fi- I when felt, her husband finally gave her permission to... Right. <laughs> I, I mean, I was just kind of... I was put off by the way I was talked down to as if I didn't know anything simply because of my gender. It's absolutely a million percent true that a young male fresh out of film school with zero experience under his belt in feature films will get a chance before a woman who has gone through film school and had an internship and worked and created films will get taken seriously. Right. And that just, it baffles me. Well, I mean, if those statistics that I had just read are true, I mean, we're at a 19 year low. That's kind of crazy. Basically, Aaron Sorkin is one of the biggest screenwriters in Hollywood. He was making a speech at the Writers Guild this weekend and a woman got up and started crying and telling him how difficult it is to how what was it she said she said white men can make mediocre movies and continue on with their career and if a person of color a minority a woman makes a great movie they have to still knock it out of the park and still can't get a second movie and of course we're talking mainstream studio films in the independent world, you see a lot more women, but in the mainstream Hollywood, you don't. And Aaron Sorkin responded with pure shock of 
what do you mean? So, and he repeated it back to her and he said, so what you're right, saying, you're saying yeah. that if you're a woman or a person of color, you have to hit it out of the park in order to get another chance. Then after listing a handful of writers who are women and people of color, Lena Dunham, Avon DuVarnay, Jordan Peele, he asked what he could do to help. When you're sitting in a throne and it's easy for right. you and you keep getting he's handed movies. Exactly. And he's seeing people like Ava DuVernay, who is a black woman, getting handed a $100 million budget movie. So he's looking at it like, what do you mean minorities and women are having a problem? Here's Ava DuVernay. Here's Lena Dunham. What are you talking about? Um, but he's not in the trenches and he doesn't understand the struggle that writers, directors, and aspiring actors are dealing with out here. And of course, you know, actors aside, because I don't like to focus on the on-screen talent, I much prefer to focus right. on behind the scenes. But women all around, all around, whether it's editing, cinematography, lighting, how many women gaffers do you see? Maybe a lot of women don't want to do the electrical work, but I'm sure there's a few. And, you know, nobody's giving in mainstream Hollywood, like I said, independent ho- independent movies is different. It's a it's completely different wheelhouse, and that will be a topic for another week. We'll wrap this topic with appreciation for the men in our lives, in the world, and in this industry who do value us and the work that we do. For those of you listening who, or for those of you who might be listening, who genuinely want to help change the industry for better for women, listen to women, read their scripts, hire more women, write more roles for women, and thank you for hearing us. All right. Are you ready to talk to our visionary, Miss Lady Brain? Yes. Let's introduce Casey Gates to the podcast. Very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So I started like a lot of other women that I know that are in film, I began acting at a really young age. Uh, performing was always something that was in me and I was excited about doing. So I grew up doing theater. And I remember being in high school, though, and seeing, specifically watching The Virgin Suicide. I was, like, obsessed with that movie. <laughs> Especially, like, at that age, I was 14, and, like, I just related to it. I had never seen a film that I felt, like, really captured teenage girls, like the inside the mind of teenage girls. And and so I remember thinking, wow, a woman directed that. That's amazing. I would love to direct someday. And I also remember one of my other favorite movies is the Jodie Foster film, Home for the Holidays. And I knew she directed that. But I was kind of seeing this pattern of, I mean, Cecilia Coppola, she just grew up in that world. But like Jodie Foster, other women were actors first. And so I just kind of thought, oh, well, that seems like the path, you know, I'll get famous. And then, you know, because you're in high school and you think, yeah, you just get famous after you graduate. And then I'll be able to direct after that. And so that sort of was my, the way that I was looking at it. And I just didn't think of writing and directing and producing as like, a. I didn't know anything about it. I just saw the Steven Spielberg archetype, you know. I went to conservatory and did acting training, and then I came to L.A. after college and started doing that whole thing. And, you know, everyone tells you, too, that if you can imagine yourself doing anything else, do it. Don't do acting unless it's the only thing you can do. So I almost felt like I talked myself into thinking, well, this is the only thing I can do, you know. 
but then, you know, as I was pursuing it, you know, a lot of people said to try creating your own work to stand out. And so I did that. I created sketches that I would put online with my friends and I wrote a one woman show and I did that a few times in LA and I took it to New York for a festival, a theater festival out there. And I just got really excited about creating the content and being the person that's like, you know, imagining it and having a vision and seeing it all the way through from the seed of an idea to something that I get to share with people and get feedback about. It's so much more fulfilling to me than just stepping into someone else's project and being a vessel for their vision as an actor. So it was a very long process, I feel like, several years of you know, growing up thinking I'm pursuing this one thing to transitioning into letting go of that. I think the biggest thing was in L.A., you know, you, you think, oh, well, if I want to pursue acting, I have to be available Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Like, I can't have any job that would take me away from any possible audition. And that was really suffocating and constricting to be able to make a living. So, you know, I was doing the serving and all these odd jobs that I could find and I just once I like let go of the idea that I needed to keep auditioning I decided to do more of a normal person job for a little while and give myself like give my brain some space to figure out what it was that I really did want to do and how would I approach that so I actually started working in social media in entertainment specifically so for the last three or four years I've been working uh, full-time as like social media marketing, but specifically with entertainment companies. Like I worked for a production company and now I work with talent specifically, um, helping them strategize social media presence and promotion. So I think it was through that though, like giving myself some space, like I needed space in my brain to like let whatever creativity I felt authentic to me to come out. And so when I was working at the production company, I helped with Project Greenlight um, that went on HBO for another season in 2015. So I helped run that contest because we did it all through social media, basically. And, you know, I, I watched tons of short films <laughs> and, you know, had to kind of assess if I saw something that stuck out. And, you know, if they were all three-minute films, and that's really hard to do a great in three minutes and so I just remember thinking I could do this you know and the, our, our numbers were so awful in looking at how many women or people of color submitted to that contest and I just I've known for a while and that was just like more assurance that there's such a gap in the kind of content that's out there and I felt like called to help fill that and contribute my voice in a unique way. So I kind of started this initiative for myself called Lady Brain. And what that means to me is just like pursuing uh, being a leader and being a filmmaker from a female perspective and encouraging other women and women's stories. Uh, so I just started making little digital videos with my phone, basically. <laughs> And I made like a couple short like documentary style uh, videos of like women that I knew that had a cool story. I would interview them and shoot a bunch of footage, put it together. And 
Yes, and so I can talk more about what I've been working on, but that's kind of how I arrived at filmmaking was I just feel so much more called to being able to contribute my voice and help diversify the content that's out there. It just feels so much more fulfilling and you know exciting to me. I really enjoyed watching Lady Brains. Um, you really got personal and raw with it, and it was like really powerful. I really was thrilled to be, you know, like the real world, basically, mm -hmm. not like the real world. You know, it was, I really, really enjoyed it. When I watched your Lady Brain pieces and, and there was the one video where you were the real behind the scenes and, and the frustration and the crying and the, I can't do this all on my own. And it's frustrating thinking I, you know, bit off more than I could chew, basically. And I can't tell you how many times I feel that way. And so when I saw that, I was like, hold on. I'm not the only one going through this. I'm one of many frustrated women trying to do this. So this is exactly why I put the podcast together. Seeing seeing that, was it reminded me, this is exactly why I'm doing this and exactly why I want to keep connecting with other women to remind myself and so that we can remind each other, you're not in this alone. We're, we're all battling the same frustration because I think that, you know, if you're lucky enough to be born with a penis and the right color skin, it comes really easy for you. Mm -hmm. But if you're born with any other genitals and any other color skin, then it's going to be a challenge, uh, and it sucks because I see so many, so many talented people, so much passion and, and stories to tell, and we can't, we can't get a word in edgewise. Well, that's really awesome <laughs> that's feedback to get. Though. So yeah, that's that's great because I it's hard putting your vulnerabilities out there, but I I saw that too. I saw this pressure for women. Already, it's so hard. We have this insane mountain in front of us already. And so we feel like we have to overcompensate and sh not show any weakness and be like, I have it all together. I got this. Don't you worry about it because there's so much doubt that's been ingrained in us. Um, and we hear these quotes about producers and men saying that they don't trust women with large budgets, you know what I mean? Because they don't think they can handle that kind of money. What's messed up about that is like when you look at the what? home situations, men always give their paychecks to their wife because yeah. if you don't, the men are going to overspend. Mm -hmm. That's, that's like the, the most ridiculous logic I've ever heard in my life. Men don't trust women with money is ridiculous when it's like, wait a second, I don't trust, I couldn't trust my ex-husband with money. Like... At all. If I, if I let him keep his paychecks, he would literally go out and buy Guitar Hero crap. I know. It's true. And I love what Jill Soloway says about this, too, And because women are, like, ashamed for crying when they're on set as a director. Like, just automatically people go, oh, she's too emotional. She's too emotional. She can't do it. You know, and Jill Soloway's like, I think it's, it's pertinent for a director to be able to access their emotion on set with the act we're dealing with human emotions like why is that so shamed you know and then like I just just thinking about that and that's what I wanted to show in my lady brain episodes too because like I understand myself enough to know if I try to push down my emotion I become handicapped but if I let it be what it needs to be I actually feel more empowered and I can feel like I can fucking kick ass Oh, I don't know if I can yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can kick ass. Worldwide internet. Yeah. <laughs> While I'm crying, like, I actually step into a stronger place sometimes if I need to do that. You know, it shouldn't be this thing that, like, oh, women can't do it or, you know, can't decide what 
frame they want because they're so complicated. Like, these such stereotypical ideas of women on set, you know. It's funny because whenever I hear of stories like that, I think in terms of, well, what about when you hear stories of someone yelling at everyone, cussing at everyone, making people quit their quit acting or, or want to quit acting? How is that not men going overboard with their emotions and being over-emotional where they can't handle the job? I feel like if you're on set and you hate being on set or you feel like you need to be an outright raging asshole to everybody, whether you're male or female, get off set. You don't, you're not in the right place. That's not where you deserve to be. That's not where you belong. And I don't care how great your vision is, according to the Academy, if you make people feel like shit and no one likes working with you, then you're not a good director. I agree. You know, I mean, I would rather have someone who is in touch with their emotions and can say, hold on, I need a break, and step out of the room for five minutes so that they don't explode on everyone and go do whatever they need to do to, to cope with whatever they're feeling rather than to have someone emotionally explode, lose their shit, and be verbally abusive. But if you need to cry, then cry. I'm like, are you serious? But, but like, you know, but I think it's important to be in tune with your emotions because as storytellers, aren't we trying to tell things that are emotional to us? Aren't we trying to evoke emotions from our audience? So do we have to pretend like we're all sociopaths? <laughs> I mean, is that what Hollywood wants from us? I'm not a sociopath. I can't pretend to be one. I, I can't. 100%. Yeah, especially the tra the specific training that I've had. We talked about that while we were acting and rehearsing and working on our material. was like, you're going to get awful directors that, like, don't know how to talk to actors. And, you, you know, I learned from the actor's perspective, like getting a bad note and how to translate that into applying it to something I can work with. And so now on the other side of that, if I like, maybe I have a first instinct, like be happier. And I'm like, that's an awful note. Okay. Let me rework that in my brain. What would I do if I were in that position as that performer? Okay. And let me talk about like how much joy this person brings in your life because of this, this, and this reason. And you know what I mean? Like getting to the root of it. So absolutely like giving direction, is just, I feel like working with actors is the thing I feel most confident about with filmmaking. It's all the like ear talk and you know, the, the other things <laughs> that I'm still learning about that I'm like, wait. I went to technical uh, school with boys, so I learned, I learned both sides of that. So, but it's, I feel like talking to actors is so comfortable doing that. Like, that's my world because I can tell them, well, this is what the character's feeling and this is what they want. And having that background in acting allows me to be able to talk to them and communicate with them in a way that I feel like directors who don't have that background uh, can't do. They, they can't empathize. Yeah, I, I have felt my acting training has specifically helped my writing as well. And just like, you know, playing out scenes in your head, you know, and like you under you kind of get what a character's voice would be and like being able to imagine these circumstances and then like, to the page and like get behind where that character is coming from from a subjective point of view as you're writing for them. Yeah, it's really fun. <laughs> you mentioned earlier about how roles are in for women, you know, the girlfriend, the wife, the secretary, and now you're in a position of power where you get to write the role. So how how is that impact on your writing? I mean, it's so fun. <laughs> I love being able to write women that are flawed. There's like, yeah, it's been amazing being able to get 
play that role now, um, being a writer. And, you know, I'm so interested in being able to write women that are flawed, something that I notice in coming up as an actor that there's this, like, you know, you get put into a box and everyone talks about it. It's like, you're the Madonna or the whore, or, you know. And and being able to write women that I, I can relate to and are likable but that have these flaws. And you can hate them sometimes, too, or, like, cringe at what they're saying, but you still want to root for them. Because there's so many male characters like that. And it's like, oh, yeah, what about an anti-heroine versus just the anti-hero? You know, they're like... It's, there's so many more layers to it, and I think that's really interesting. So let's talk about the first short film that I saw of yours, List Out, because I I loved that. I thought it was so funny, and it was I, relatable. I mean, I haven't personally gone through that, but I can so see how this can happen. Like, so how, what inspired that? So I... Real life did inspire it. I don't think, like, that situation specifically happened to me, but, like, I had enough situations happen to me that were, like, of that world because I worked in the yoga community. I was a full-time teacher, and I, like, trained students to get certified as teachers and very immersed in the spiritual yoga community. And I love it, and I think it's a beautiful practice, but I think working on the business side of yoga and having to like think about making money and capitalizing this ancient philosophy is just so weird and also there's people like it can attract the crazies you know like I need yoga because I like I'm not like zen just like automatically and you think of that as really yeah exactly you think of like oh people that do yoga are all like zen out or it's a control freaks, you know what I mean? A lot of people with anxiety, a lot of, you know, it's just people that need validation, or and that's fine. But I think just my personal experience in that community, I saw this just the thing that people were putting out into the world is like, I am this, and I am connected, and I am grounded, or I have this enlightenment, and like, you know, to be... Uh, to be a teacher or a leader in that space, I think what we're just talking about, people overcompensate and they feel like they have to put out this idea of themselves as being, having it all together. And so I would get to see behind the scenes of those people's lives, you know, and like, and so actually my one woman show was about this topic. That was the first thing that I wrote in this world, and it was called The Yoga American Dream. <laughs> and I just played a bunch of different – it was more, like, character-based. I played, like, eight different characters, and they were all kind of, like, monologues directed to the audience and in different settings. And so it's sort of like a, you know, collaboration of that. But I just am so interested in the people that are in the spiritual community and the – the way they talk themselves out of something or talk themselves into something and they justify everything as being like from the universe and, or they manifested it, you know, um, there's just, it's comedic to me. (laughs) And so blissed out came from that. And actually I'm now writing a pilot based on that whole idea too. Oh, that's that's fun. Called blissed out. Like, so it's the same name, but, I actually do read. <laughs> yeah, and I'm actually working to rewrite that short, but I was just talking about inverting roles. Um, so the main character is going to be a woman um, that's more 
the archetype, like you saw the guy in the short. And so she kind of sleeps with these younger guys. And, um, I love that idea. Yeah. It's, it's so funny. Like Gina Davis inspired me when I was reading something she wrote last year about, or something she said last year about you can make more roles for women by flipping your genders, flipping your characters. And I looked at this one script. I looked at all my scripts and I was like, what scripts of mine can I do this with? And there was one in particular, and I was like, and I flipped it. And it made the story so much stronger. It made the character so much deeper. It was so much more interesting to me. I was like, wow, wait a second. I've never seen a story like this. And now it's so much deeper, so much stronger. Like, it's amazing that you can change your story in such a way just by changing the genders of the main characters. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I felt that way, too. I was like, oh, this is, I actually know more women like this, even. I mean, I know the guys like that, too. Like, I dated yoga you guys. Never <laughs> right. like for so long, society yeah. has painted women as, you're right, the Madonna or the whore. There's nothing in between. You're either the good girl or the bad girl, and, and women are not allowed to be sexually expressive and a good girl. They have to be, you know, if you're sexually expressive, you're a whore, period. There's nothing else period. But yet these same men who like to portray women like that would not want to see their sisters, mothers, daughters portrayed that way. So why would they portray every other woman that way? Yeah. As these men start becoming fathers, I think that things will maybe change. I really like seeing, uh, hearing some of what uh, Kevin Smith has said as his daughter's becoming older. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is neat to see that and it's also like it shouldn't take that <laughs> it shouldn't yeah. take that but you know what if that's what it takes to put it in perspective I know that that these men would not want their daughters going through what other women have to go through in the casting hour. process and casting couch yeah it's their baby girl but but they would think nothing of doing that to someone else's baby girl so that's where I think things are going to change eventually I have hope right and it's back to what Gina Davis talks about with her institute as well and what they're working on is by showing stories and having women uh, grow up and men grow up seeing the stories of women that, like, haven't been shown enough. That can cause a lot of change in the way we adapt to our role, you know, and, like, completely affect society. Girl Code. Let's talk about Girl Code. Tell me all about Girl Code. Absolutely. So Girl Code started as a short play. The one-act play that my friend Jessica Jacobs wrote, and I... She kind of asked me to come on board early in the process. So she wrote a first draft of a one-act play called Girl Code, and it was, like, going to be set up for her and uh, our other friend Kate Spare to act in. And she wanted me to come on as director and direct it for the stage. And so this was last January of 2016. So I came on board really early, and we started rehearsing it, as well as workshopping the script for the stage. And it went through a bunch of different drafts, and I was able to kind of give my feedback through the writing process, too, which was really great. And then we put it up in May of last year and did it for three weekends and had pulled out houses. And, you know, it was, like, it was just really successful. Yeah, it was, like, a little theater in North Hollywood. No, it's still awesome. It was great. And we got really great feedback, especially from the women that watched the play. And they just, you know, I don't want to give too much away because some of this is in the short, but, like, you know, they just related to it so much and were like, oh, my God, that exact thing happened. And just seeing how much, yeah, they connected to the story. And and I knew when she asked me to direct the play, I had already been doing my own films. And so I just told her, well, eventually I'd like to shoot this, too. And she was like, awesome. You know, so 
about a month after we did the, the play, I asked her if she would give me free reign to adapt for the short film script. She was like, yeah, go for it. So I spent a few weeks just kind of taking what we had, but then like really thinking about it because I knew I was going to direct it and just kind of putting it on the page. And I cut a ton of stuff, you know, film, you get to like show things instead of having to tell the audience. <laughs> you know, we were in a black box theater. We didn't have much to work with. And so I was like, oh my God, we can tell the story from so many angles. And so I added like a kind of bookend scenes, like private moments with each character that we didn't get to see on stage, like at the front and at the end with the two different characters. And I kind of reworked climax and how the conflict comes up and then also what the resolution is so um, it stayed pretty true to the play but I think just got heightened in a way and for film specifically and to add structure and she was you know the art, our writer Jessica was super down with the adaptation and then so we started thinking about how we wanted to produce it and just felt like a special project that you know list out I did for 300 bucks you know, I paid a DP. Everyone else um, basically volunteered their time. I edited it myself, and I just bought some food. <laughs> like, that was basically what we, I was able to do at that time. But I really wanted to make something with a higher budget. And so we talked about the idea of crowdfunding, and I had been wanting to work with Seed and Spark. Emily Best is one of the co-founders, and she's the CEO. And she actually is connected to the Project Greenlight people. So I kind of knew her through that and had been following that platform and just thought that it was, yeah, it was very different from Kickstarter or IndieWire in the sense that it really is about community building. It's not just asking for handouts. It's like building an audience. And, you know, they also have distribution on their site as well. So you can you know, work with them to get distributed. They have partnerships with uh, Amazon and with iTunes and Netflix and so those programmers what's good like what could we seek out for our you know our platforms so it just seemed like a great opportunity and they really actually they're trying to encourage more independent filmmaking because of the distribution side that they offer as well as that they think that people can sustain themselves by putting it online and having some you know you get a, a good portion of if people paid you know to watch it the filmmaker gets the majority of that and so I just wanted to work with them in some capacity, and I thought, you know, we aimed for uh, $5,500 is the budget that we came up with. This is my first time making a budget, too, so I've learned a lot, especially going through post right now. I did not budget enough for post, which I guess is very typical, but, like, I, you know, it's everything else I'd done before was like, I didn't need to really color correct. I didn't really need sound design, you know, but these are the things now that we want for this film. And so I'm just learning a lot about the process. And I also felt confident about crowdfunding because of our networks. I felt like between the three of us, the two actors and myself, we had a good network of people and people that wanted to see us make more things. And and we kind of did the math. Seed and Spark sets this up too. They say take as many people that you have in your on your email list or your social media, and take 30% of those people. And imagine 30% of that network will donate, contribute is the word they use, contribute $25 toward your project, and that's about as much as you can count. So that's like helpful, I think. And I do have mixed feelings about crowdfunding specifically because. 
it is hard to ask people for money. And so what I wanted to do differently with our campaign, too, is I reached out to a few small business owners that are friends of mine and asked them if they would donate products so that when people contributed, they actually got rewards that were cool and that didn't come out of pocket for us. So that was unique where I don't see that very often. And I think that's just like kind of an easy step to take. I mean, if you know people and, and you just kind of pitch yourself as like, hey, do you want to be a sponsor of our campaign? In a, you know, in exchange, we promote it on their behalf and, you know, we put them as credit in the film and we'll continue to promote their small businesses, you know, because crowdfunding you're posting all the time. And I link to them and all my posts, like, you know, it just adds exposure for their companies. So, you know, and in the especially small businesses in their first beginning, they want to donate products to just get the word out. So that was something that I was important to me. I didn't want anyone to feel like they were just spending money that they're never going to see a return on, as well as, you know, wanting there to be a chance for you, you know, a certain reward would be you get to come to our screening for free. You know, we're in the middle of planning that screening event and we're going to not sell, you know, not the tickets won't be that expensive, but it's just like, what do you get in return? You know what I mean? I really wanted people to feel like they had something back to them other than our gratitude, you know, that's like always what you say, like virtual <laughs> high five, you know, it's like what you put in there and hey, we have those too. But, and I, I because I work in social media, I felt pretty confident about marketing for it. My Lady Brain page is where I did most of it. And actually most of our donations were converted from Facebook posts, which was interesting to see. I only have 500 followers on my Lady Brain Facebook page, but that was where we got a lot of um, our donations converted from. And you're going to have 501 in one second. Oh, yay! <laughs> Lady Brain Films on right. Facebook. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, you know, I really wanted to think it out before we just like, hey, we're going to try to raise money. Hey, we're doing this. Give us some money. Like, I, I had watched enough campaigns, and I was a campaign manager for a friend that raised $20,000 on Kickstarter for their comic book. So I managed the whole, like, digital side of that campaign. And um, so I had enough experience, I felt like, to pull this off. And so and I had done a little bit of press for things before, so I, we got a couple of mentions and a few articles about our campaign. So all of those things are helpful, and you really do have to be realistic. So that's the campaign side of it. We raised all the money we needed. Woohoo! Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. It's very hard to do. So Thank yeah, you. Congrats. So is this a short film or a feature film? It's a short. Right now it's at 9 minutes and 47 seconds. <laughs> also, as I'm talking about my sponsors, I'm like, can I just shout this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Very small businesses out. Uh, game night in a can to uh, our friend of mine and his buddy. It's just this can, and it's all this like these little prompts and and toys and things to have a whole game That's night. Fun. It's really fun. They're doing great too. They have it's a. Like something I know. It sounds awesome. Yeah, it's such. They're great. Yeah, I love the like the idea of it, and it's just a fun time that you can do all ages too. And then Diosa Box is another small company. Nicole Torres is a friend of mine, and she started that, and it's basically a monthly subscription box, but it's all about self-care, so Diosa means goddess, um, and every month there's a different theme, and you get, like, something topical, you get something, like, edible, you get, like, a spiritual thing, and I don't know, it's, it's kind of cool. It's, like, to treat yourself, so the, the 
people that I actually helped raise money for on Kickstarter last year, they have a comic book and it's a publishing company as well as Hex 11 is their um, like ongoing series of comics. And it's three women that started it themselves. And their elevator pitch is Harry Potter meets Blade Runner. So getting back to the the project, it's a um, short film. So the pa- the the script was like eleven pages, I think, and we've cut, you know, since then as well. Or you know, you shoot it, and then you're like, oh, I actually don't need that chunk. Or <laughs> so we w- we did the produ- the the shoot early December, and I basically was the main producer of the whole project as well as director, which I'll never do again. <laughs> <laughs> Directing or producing? I'll never do both of those jobs at the same time. There was no one else on set that knew everything happening. Like, I didn't even have, like, you know, if you, like, plan a wedding and you get, like, you just have a coordinator the day of, you know. Like, I should have had a producer the day of or something, someone that knew everything that was going on. So, I mean, I really am happy with the film. I feel really proud of it. I feel a little, like, felt a little bummed that the process of being on set was just overwhelming for me. Stressful. We were running a space that we couldn't go over on, you know, and I had I had about seven crew members, so it's not huge, but that was larger than what I'd had before for any of the little digital shorts that I'd done. Um, and so managing all those people and the timing that it takes between everything, and, I, you know, I tried to make the shot list ahead of time, and I definitely didn't give enough time for certain things or, you know, so all of it was a big learning the best thing about it was the fact that my actors and I had been working together for a year. And we did the play. Even though the script changed for the short, we did, like, three rehearsals before we showed up to set. They were completely 110% prepared from first take, emotionally there, and word perfect. And it was like, if they weren't that rock star, it wouldn't have happened. See, but that, but that also, I think... Uh, speaks for your directing and your ability as a director to have had your actors prepared and ready to go ahead of time, which, yes, it does speak for their talent as actors, but it also speaks for your talent as a director to have that foresight. Thank you. Yeah, it felt good on that end of it. I mean, I just... I just had to like come and check in with them. Like, you good? You guys good? Five minutes? Okay. Yeah, you look great. Let's do it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's the basically the story is like two ex best friends kind of. They've sort of like you know parted ways, but then they run into each other at the gym and they kind of have things get brought up. Uh, and the first half, like Girl Code, the title is kind of a play on two different ideas of what that means. One of which being like the codes in which women talk. Uh, the the subtext right you hear I hear these conversations all the time between women where you're like oh my god they're so fake like you can tell <laughs> they hate each other but if you only looked at the words they're saying on a script you would have no idea it's all in the performance or you know delivery. <laughs> the delivery of it so that fascinates me the way women communicate and deal with conflict fascinates me so that's a big part of why I wanted to do and that doesn't we don't see those stories enough. Definitely no, not. Because a man can't write that story because a man isn't a man. A man doesn't speak that language. Or even get it. They don't get girl code. <laughs> <At all. laughs> like you know, two women, two wives could run into each other at a party and the husbands are thinking like, Oh, it's so nice that our wives get along but the things that they're saying to each other are just not nice. <laughs> they may seem nice on the outside, but that subtext and tone is like 
biting and scathing. And it's so layered. I have a guy friend that's like, yeah, my, my girlfriend dragged me to like this um, engagement party for this girl she kind of knows and her fiance. And like, you know, I'm like, why, why are we going? You hate her. Like, you know, it's just like, you don't get it. Like, exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah, we have all these, like, we have to. <laughs> these complicated relationships with each other that just go into so many layers that the guys are like, just don't go. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because we watched, I watched, and then I sent it to her and made her watch it, um, the preview for Bad Mom. Mm-hmm. And I took one. We were part. We were in playgroups. That's where we became friends. That's where we met in a playgroup. I was like, women don't talk like this. No <laughs> woman wrote this. No woman would ever say this. I have not seen it. I don't talk, like, It's either the cattiness is like too catty and it's not real, uh, or the niceness is like we don't talk that way. And no one says I'm going to punch you in the tits. No one says that. <laughs> no one says that. Girls don't say that. We do say throat punch a lot though. <laughs> like 
the connection that they have with each other and the relationship and the importance of that love between them that's been tarnished for I won't say why. <laughs> we'll wait, we'll wait to see the movie because I want to watch the movie. And then as soon as it is out, we will add a link to that as well. But are you going to put it through the film festival or do you have a plan for that once it's done? Yeah, we are submitting to festivals. Um, so right now I'm going to my colorist tomorrow, uh, and we hope to be able to be done for some, like, March 1st deadline. And I've never done the festival circuit or anything, so we're trying – I've tried to uh, I've tried to do some research and be strategic about that because I don't want to just submit everywhere. I don't want it to just play in Maryland for the sake of it playing there and not be able to attend, you know. So we're targeting a lot of – places we could drive to and show up and participate. We just want to, like, network and be able to, yeah, participate in the filmmaking community in a way, um, in that kind of way. And so we have, you know, some targets for where we want to go, but we kind of are doing it in waves. So we have a first wave, and we'll see how that goes, and then kind of strategize if we want to keep going that route. And it's a 10-minute short. I am aware that, like, it's not going to – quote unquote, go viral, like, you know, kind of thing. But I do think eventually we will want to release it digitally um, and, you know, allow people to watch it that way. It's been six months since I've posted a Lady Brain episode, and I was like, kind Get of. Get on it. And I was like, oh, that's how long it took me to make this short film. Okay. Like, so then now you need to go do one and talk about, yeah, talk yeah. about behind the scenes and everything. Because I, I can't wait to hear about and see Girl Code. And yeah, so we'll wrap it up on that note. On last note, do you have any advice? I think just getting in touch with what you want to say, you know, what your voice is and what you want to have. I think that that, when we connect to that, it propels us much more because you're coming from like what's inside versus if all we're thinking about is you know, getting towards these external goals, like you can kind of just feel bogged down. But if like, like right now, I'm like, wow, like I made something because I wanted to share my vulnerabilities and I'm getting feedback that like it landed with people. I'll keep going. That's what I'll keep going for. Not because I got an award at a film festival. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I really feel like it's the impact, you know, and so getting true about your authentic voice and how you want to impact people with your work, to me, it just it makes it all worth it. It makes you stay up that extra hour that you need to to finish the cut or whatever it is, you know. So that's that's what I thought of top of mind. <laughs> awesome. I totally agree with you, and I think you're amazing. Thank you so much for coming out and talking with us and being on the podcast and, and for doing everything that you do. Thank you for having me. This is such a treat. Yeah, this is awesome. And that's a wrap for this week. Come back next week, and we'll be talking with the amazing Tina Carbone. If you don't know who she is, you need to. Definitely. Thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for Tina Time. And in the meantime, go make your movies. You don't need permission. You just need passion. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye.